I think it's an African saying, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Sometimes you want to go fast. And yet when you want to actually change the world in a meaningful way for a longer period of time, you can't really do it alone. From the Jewish Funders Network, this is What Gives, the Jewish Philanthropy Podcast. I'm Andres Pokoini. On What Gives, we explore and debate the issues that matter in philanthropy and the Jewish community. And along the way, we build a deeper sense of community by sharing stories, getting to know the people in our field, and spreading ideas that can help all Jews and all givers change the world. Today, we are speaking with Jeff and board member Sintra Pollack. Sintra is an investment professional and has been managing a single family office, Ray Street Management, and a family foundation, the Singer Family Foundation in Denver, Colorado for 11 years. Prior to that, she worked at Granite Point Capital, the University of Washington Technology Transfer Office, epilepsy.com, and amazon.com. Her philanthropic work in the Jewish world includes serving on Jewish Colorado's executive board for three years and its board of director for nine years. She has also held a number of national portfolios as part of JFNA's National Young Leadership Cabinet, and she is a regional advisor to One Table. Her non-sectarian work includes serving as a trustee at Davidson College for the last few years. She holds an MBA from the Foster School of Business and a bachelor's degree in English with an Asian Studies concentration from Davidson College in North Carolina. I wanted to talk to Sintra because she represents a very interesting segment of our membership. Younger funders that explore new ways of doing philanthropy and combine traditional communal activism with strategic giving. In this episode, Sintra and I talk about impact investing, how she balances her family foundation work with Jewish Federation involvement, giving away money versus raising money, and how COVID has changed everything. Take a listen. Hi, Sintra. Great having you. Hi, Andres. Nice to be here. So, Sintra, you you have an interesting philanthropic journey. Would you care sharing it with us and telling us a little bit about yourself? My, my philanthropic journey in some ways starts that I was a born volunteer and I used to always raise my hand for everything. And my mom told me to stop when I was in grade school because mm-hmm. that meant I was volunteering her. But... Um, As far as that led to philanthropy, I think that that attitude sort of carried through that I I sort of jump in there. But I started thinking about philanthropy when I I moved to Seattle after college. And for the first time in my life, my mom told me that she had started a family foundation and that I was responsible for giving away some of the money every year and that I was responsible for researching the things that I was going to give to and that my brother would have the same responsibility and so this was sort of new to me, but all of a sudden I had, I had responsibility for more money than I ever could have given on my own. Uh, my first job was at amazon.com. It was not really that well paying, but I wanted to be philanthropic, but it was great to have the tools of our foundation. And it sort of opened my eyes to how you think about being a philanthropist. I also didn't know anything about where to give. I knew it was important to my mom that we think about where we live. And I think that that probably comes straight from this sort of Jewish way of looking at, you know, your own circle immediately. But I was in Seattle and new to the community. So I started by asking the people I knew there who I knew were giving away money and were philanthropic there, what they did. And I kind of mimicked them at first. 
And what was like one grand that, or one gift that you particularly liked from those early days? Well, I remember the first year I actually gave three places. I made my first gift to the Seattle Federation. I didn't know what the Federation was, but when it was explained to me, I realized that my mom had been volunteering for the Colorado version of that when I was a small child. I gave to something called Dance Chance. And Dance Chance was a program for lower income students to be able to take ballet lessons. And one of the reasons I gave there is because I had always been a dancer. And I knew that the ability to express yourself and you know, in touch with your own body and physicality had been important to me. And I thought that that was an opportunity that shouldn't just be conveyed upon those who already have advantage. And it wasn't just about learning to dance. Certainly, I'm not a professional ballerina, and that didn't affect my life in that way. But the kind of poise or the sense of self that that brought, I thought, should be available to more people. And I think that that's carried through to today, where a lot of what we do in our foundation and what I do personally is I try to make things that have been my advantages accessible to people that might not have them. So from Seattle, you went back to Colorado. I didn't, actually. <laughs> I moved from Seattle to Boston. Oh, okay. And in, in Boston, I did some stuff there. I joined Social Venture Partners in Boston and got some somewhat involved. But I was there for three years, three and a half years before I moved back to Colorado. So, yes, and, but, you can but skip Colorado, Boston, but yes. <laughs> via, via Boston. But in Colorado, you, you actually sit on, on the two sides of the Jewish philanthropic field. On the one hand, you, you run your family philanthropy. But on the other hand, you also work at the Federation. You're, you have leadership positions at the Federation, right? So, so actually, yeah. actually, I've been on three sides of it because I do run our family foundation and I do run, run our grant making process. And I also am the development chair for our Federation. So I'm asking people for money. Sometimes that means asking myself for money, which is a little awkward. <laughs> I have to figure out how to extricate myself from that a little bit. But I've also been a recipient of our Federation. I was a Wexner Heritage Fellow, and that was partially funded by the Federation. And I've been on trips to Israel, that um, young leadership trips that were paid for by people who'd given to our Federation. So uh, I actually am on three sides of the coin. Right. And any learning that that left you with, like of the importance of how these two worlds can work better together? I think it's really easy when you sit in one place to judge the other place. Right. But when you have to sit in both places, you have to understand that there's complexity and there are certain compromises that you make with both, but that integrity matters. And so there are things you stick to. For example, just my integrity, I don't just ask our foundation for everything I need for the campaign. I have to have some sort of a, a distance and, and separate my sides. But I also understand how hard it is to do the work of a federation right. and how imperfect everything is, but how much at the end of the day, even though it's an imperfect process, a lot of really good things happen. And so it's still worth participating in. Right. It's kind of funny because you know, a few years ago, the world of independent philanthropy was seen as a little bit adversarial to the world of communal philanthropy, to federations. And now the, the system really changed. And we see more these two sides of the philanthropic field as, as really as two sides of the same coin, right? And with folks like you that are have one leg in, in each and are helping to build a better partnership between foundations and, and federations. I think it's an African saying, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Yeah. I think that yeah. there's room for both. Sometimes you want to go fast, 
And yet when you want to actually change the world in a meaningful way for a longer period of time, you can't really do it alone. And right. federations are one way to work with other people and not the only way. Yeah. But JFN is the other. Yeah. <laughs> and there are more beyond that. Let's, there are let's more beyond that. No, but, but, it, but it's a very important point you're making. So in a way, philanthropy, like family foundations like yours, their added value in the communal conversation is to take the risk, right? Because they don't have that process that you were describing before. You can decide to make a grant, take a risk, absorb that risk, and then the federation can come in and bring it to scale in a way, in a more systemic manner. Right. You can take the risk, but you can also be the leverage. Right. So, and that is a way of taking the risk too, but you can try to use your position or your influence or your, or your dollars to influence the giving of others and the direction of others in a way that as an individual, you can always ask your friends, but when you can actually put something for people to be a part of and match it or do other kinds of mechanisms that you can do when you're making a larger grant or the first grant in or something else, um, you have, you have more tools. And now we're seeing with the pandemic, like we're seeing a renewed cooperation between federation and foundations, right? Like, you know, federations need help from foundations, but also foundations need to understand the need. And federations are uniquely well positioned to identify those needs and guide collective action to respond to the crisis. I think that's true. And I think that one, one thing that's really interesting about this particular crisis is that it's affecting all of us. The Federation has always been known as a place you go in critical times. Just there are other organizations, too, that you think about crises, and that's where your money goes. But the crisis is for all of us and all of our communities, and it's for human services, but it's also for you know engagement programs, and it's for so many different things all at once. So I guess in some ways, by going to the federation system or JFNA or JFN or these larger communal organizations, you get a, a broader scope because it's affecting us all. Right. Um, and when you have this role of, you know, development chair and you need to solicit gifts and talk to a lot of donors, are you seeing some common thread in the way donors are responding, not just to the crisis, but in general, what kind of arguments, what kind of case makes them tick? What gets them motivated to give? I think that for some of the donors that I um, that I had to ask for money for our COVID emergency community response fund, I think that for them, um, one of the things that was particularly meaningful to them when I asked them was coming back to that sense of the Federation being the place of the communal. And over time in our different communities, the Federation has been more, I mean, in Colorado, for sure, the Federation actually has its own programs and is more of an agency. But all of a sudden they were saying, this is what umbrella giving is for. This is what communal giving is for. This is what it's okay that it's a black box because we know on the other side of that black box that you're looking at all the needs that we don't know about. So this is what we've been missing in some ways in in Jewish communal giving is that sense that we can take care of everything a little bit, (laughs) but nobody can take care of anything on their own. Nobody can solve the problems that are brought by COVID. Right. But if we put COVID aside for a minute, like you've been dealing with the development for, for a number of years, right? Like, are you seeing a change in the interest of people? Are you seeing some patterns like younger people prefer these, older people prefer that, women prefer these, men prefer that? I mean, I think it depends on the individual. Of course, I'd say broadly, yes, younger people prefer things that they can touch, smell, feel, feel like they change that thing and they can see the metrics and they can measure it. 
I actually think that older Federation donors sort of miss the idea of just giving one gift and not thinking about it. I don't mean that in a bad way, but just knowing that their bases are covered because it's not always the case anymore. But I think that women are more receptive initially to the idea of impact investment than men are. But I don't know that you can draw such fine lines around people. I mean, I've only been asking people for money for a year and a half. I've been giving Mm -hmm. it a lot longer. Now, you mentioned impact investing, and that's a great segue for my next question, which is this is an area that you care a lot about, that you're very involved with. And you're not not alone. We did a survey of younger Jeff and members, and we found out that younger folks are 20 times more likely to use new philanthropic vehicles than older folks. Why do you think people are so attracted to these new forms of giving or of investing in social good? I mean, I can tell you why I'm invested in it or why I care about it. I can't tell you for everybody, but I think that, you know, if you just look at trends of like what products people buy, I'm not millennial, but I'm close enough to millennial to have millennial friends. And I feel like at some level, it's really important to millennials that even though their lives are very much focused on themselves in a way that what they're doing is somehow impacting a larger world, that they don't want to buy eyeglasses that don't help give eyeglasses to the poor, or they they think about where they buy their groceries, or, you know, there's just a, a difference in their attitude in general. And I, and I think that that's fine. I think sometimes it's a little idealistic, or it's a little bit missing some of the point, but I'll tell you why I think it's important. I think it's important to look at impact investment as another part of the spectrum of what you can do philanthropically, because having the toolbox with the most number of tools that are most specific to your needs is helpful. The way that you look at a philanthropic investment is not so different the way that you look at an investment investment. It's just with one of them, you're looking to get back an outcome. And with one of them, you're looking to get back your money. But when you're investing financially, you're also looking for some sort of an outcome. You don't just put money in and hope that more money comes out the other side. Maybe some people do. But I think that when you invest in a company, it's because you believe in the product or the vision. Or when you invest in a portfolio of bonds, it's because you believe that municipalities and the projects that they have are important, but you also want to get paid back. There's there's that way of looking at a financial investment. I think it's the same with how you look at your philanthropic investments. And there's really this sort of big gray area in between that we've separated, but artificially. And I think that one of the most exciting things that are happening in the field of philanthropy is that we're not looking at those things as siloed anymore. In other words, you know, in the past, it used to be very neatly separated, right? The corporate world, the business world was one thing. The philanthropic world was another thing. And we, we even called them sectors, like the first sector, the second, the, the third sector. And now we're sort of harnessing the power of commercial investments to do good. So in a way, it gives people the opportunity, as you said, to to use more tools that they have at their disposal, not just a 5% of your corpus in grant making, but 100% of it invested in doing good. I mean, unless you're a very selfless person who doesn't think about the future in the same way that I do, at least... If you're also investing in the things that you think are good for the world and are going to move the world to a better place, then you're going to be able to do more than if you do keep those silos intact. And the other silo that is breaking too is the relation with government. I mean, in Israel, we see it all the time that philanthropists 
do something or pilot something and then the government takes over. In the US, we're not so used to work with the government as another philosophy, but it's part of the same process of breaking those silos and try to have impact with as many tools as you have. Although, I mean, we used to, the big foundations, you know, the, the foundations of the steel titans and oil titans, that was the experimental money that the government used to pilot its programs. Later, you, know, you could scale something up and prove efficacy, and some of those things failed. And that yeah. was the risk capital. Maybe we're just coming back to something that was done long ago. Yeah, exactly. And I think one of the main problems that we have with this world of impact investing, and probably you have felt this yourself, is that is. It's not very well defined. Impact investing can be a spectrum of things and and folks don't necessarily know how to navigate that, right? Well, right. I mean, actually, every kind of investing is impact investing. It just might not be a positive impact investment. But yeah, I think that people have gotten hung up on the notion, and this is not all that impact investing is, but they get hung up on the notion of impact investing being venture capital style projects that are going to revolutionize the world and you're going to take venture capital style risks with that yeah. level of reward. Yeah. And that is part of impact investment. And if you have a lot of money to have at your disposal, then you can use it and you can do those things. And it's exciting. On the other hand, there's a lot of people that think that impact investing is just ESG. And it's like going through publicly traded portfolios and eliminating things that you think are bad. And right. that's not very inspiring. Right. I mean, I, right. I don't think that every day you wake up saying, I don't want to do bad as much as you say, <laughs> I want to do good. So I think that right. there's all this stuff in between, and but also, you know, a little bit short of the miraculous, you know, that, that sort of venture capital, like I'm going to fix the climate. It's too big for most of us, maybe not for all of us, but I think that that's where all the stuff in between is becoming more interesting. And also I think that, you know, it doesn't have to be fancy, like something like Hebrew free loan, or like giving working families loans that are you know, a very low interest, that's impact investing too, right? Like you're sacrificing return, but you're doing social good and you're generating a multiplying effect in the community. And sometimes you're sacrificing return, but what you're getting back, I mean, I think that all investments are sort of a balance of you know, liquidity, horizon, return, right. and level of risk. And right. so I, I would say that in some of what you're talking about with some of those low interest loans, Yes, you're sacrificing return. You might have some opportunity costs for your money. But one, you're getting something out of it that you think is good for society. But two, they might not be as risky as they look. Right. And so that's one balance. I mean, Or another yeah, thing is just horizon. I mean, if you can wait a little bit longer than your normal investor, then you could possibly get the same return. It just might take you longer. Yeah. Statistically speaking, uh, micro grants and micro loans have a very, very low default rate. They're very safe. And especially those that involve an entire community, not just an individual. There is a default rate, right? But that default rate might be balanced by your desire to help the people that needed the loan out. And that would have been your philanthropy otherwise. So it's really not much risk to you as a philanthropic impact investor. I meet with a lot of Jeff and members who say, I love the idea, I get it, but it's kind of difficult for me to understand it. Just give me examples. Like here comes what you're saying. Like people think, oh, I'm going to invent some alternative energy that it's going to save the world by stop fossil fuels. But in fact, there is a whole panoply of of tools that people can use. And and I think that there is a role that we need to play. I mean, when I say we, I said JFN and similar organizations on educating funders about what the tools are and what they are not and sort of helping folks differentiate between what is real impact investing tools and what is 
you know, a charlatan calling something with a fancy name. I think that part of the problem is as far as the impact investments in the middle, we don't have a lot of product available right. to the Jewish world in particular. It doesn't I mean, mean we do we, in Israel, but not in the Jewish community writ large. Well, right. And in Israel, there's a lot of really great projects there and a lot of amazing things you can do with your money investment wise. They're, they're benefiting Jews because it's Israel, but they might also be benefiting non-Jews in Israel. There are non-Jewish Israelis, of course, yeah. but it's a different thing. If you're, if you're working on funding a solar project in Israel, it's good for Israel, but it's actually better for the climate. Yeah. And so it's not helping the Jewish world. So if you're a Jewish philanthropist, there's not a lot of stuff in the Jewish world that we can right. do as impact investors yet. <laughs> I mean, well, other, other religious groups do it a lot more than we do. And I don't know exactly why we're sort of slow to this, but we are. Well, part of it is we're, we're slow. We're, we're very, it's kind of funny, we're very traditional in our philanthropy, even though we don't think we are, but we are. And the second thing is that there's a question of critical mass. Like I would love, for example, to come up with an impact investing solution for Jewish education. But do, do we have the critical mass, right? Like that's also the question there that always plagues the question of impact investing in the Jewish community. But we should get creative and try to create more product. Maybe that will come and maybe more product will be get more product. But it's, it's hard to... It's hard to envision what you could invest in when you don't have good examples that you see on a regular basis and that you've seen work. Let's shift gears for a second. You're part of a family philanthropy, but you are, in fact, second generation of the foundation. Second, yes, um, but third generation. My, my grandfather actually started a family foundation called the Morris and Libby Singer Foundation, and that was named after his parents. And so my mom started her foundation. So I used to run the Morris and Libby Singer Foundation and the Singer Family Foundation before my grandmother passed away. But when she passed away, we took the rest of the corpus of the Morris and Libby Foundation and we just spent it down. But yes, yeah, so a third, I guess. <laughs> so share with us a little bit of the good, the bad and the ugly of being a younger family member stepping in to run the family philanthropy. I mean, I don't know that there's really ugly. <laughs> I'd say that there it's is. It's the expression. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I know. No, I'm trying to think of like the worst thing about it. Though. That's why I was, I was trying to like dig out the worst part about this. I think it is an incredibly privileged position yeah. to sit as a younger person watching your mother and your grandfather do good things in the world. Mm -hmm. And they did them differently. And they thought about different considerations when they did them. I would say that the, the hard part for me is that I see a lot more new ways of thinking about things. My mother, for example, is not into the idea of impact investment. I can do it. I'm allowed to do some of it with the corpus of our foundation. Uh, I can do it with my own personal money. Um, but I can't deploy all of our assets that way because she just doesn't quite agree yet. She doesn't disagree. I also think about the kinds of projects, even just philanthropically, that I want to fund. They're different from the kinds of things that she wants to fund. Give, give uh, me an example to make it more concrete. So I think that funding a database, like an improved database for a federation so that they can know information about their donors and not screw up all of the data all of the time and not misplace information and know how old people are if you're going to look at them for different age groups and leadership right. groups and have all of that information at hand. I think that that database is exciting, but I find data right. exciting. My mom, not so much. <laughs> right. But it, it, it's actually interesting what you mentioned because 
Every family is unique. I mean, I always say my good friend, Jeff Solomon says, you know, one family foundation, you know, one family foundation, right? But there is a trend though that younger folks tend to look at philanthropy in a more professional way and sort of the pendulum between intuitive and professional, the younger you go, the more professional people go. So it's not surprising to me that you care about data and measurement and whatever, when your mom probably was more intuitive about it. You know, she, she definitely yeah. is very sharp and does care about data. Here, here is another difference, though, that I would say that I've seen. When I moved back to Colorado, our foundation was underwriting a women's lunch for our federation. And I didn't know it when I showed up that my foundation was underwriting the lunch. And I asked my mom later why she didn't tell me. And she said, well, I mean, I'm not that excited about, you know, paying for the women's lunches. We never seem to raise any more money. But I said, well, so why did you do it? She said, well, they asked. And she just, you know, somebody would ask her for something for a specific purpose. Mm -hmm. And possibly because she's also running a corporation on the side, this is just something she's doing with her extra time, or possibly because she just didn't think that she could craft what she offered and for what kind of project, she just did what somebody asked, but it didn't bring her great satisfaction. And I think that that's sort of what's changing for me coming into the pictures. I'm trying to make every gift we give, not everyone's going to be equally meaningful, but everything is going in a direction that actually means something to her, that it's not just because somebody asked, but that she's giving to something because somebody asked, but because it will affect the kind of change that she hopes to see. And do you see a situation in which you managed to bring your mom from point A to point B and helping her seeing philanthropy in a different way and the other way around, things that you came in thinking and she changed your mind? Well, I think that she's definitely, you know, taken some of the uh, idealism away from me in a good way. I mean, when I, when I started, I thought you could change things. And she said, you know, things don't change so fast. You can't, affect this or that or whatever. I mean, she's been around longer and she's seen more, but she's looking at retiring sometime soon, or at least partially retiring. She's 74 and she's still running her own company that she started 40 some odd years ago, but she's looking at retiring. And when she does that, I think she'll have more time to think about her philanthropic impact. I think part of it is a function of how much bandwidth she's had to really focus on it. So I'm, I'm hopeful that with a little bit more time and space and air to kind of examine what's important, together we will work on moving towards better investment in both our philanthropic and our non-philanthropic investments that kind of work together in a more cohesive, holistic way. And do you think that you coming into the philanthropy of the family and taking a leading role there, did it? help your relation with your mom or did it weaken it? Are you better together? Uh, do you have a better relation? We're pretty good together. You know, we're not a, we're not a perfect, I mean, we're, we're family. So that means we have some yeah. issues from time to time, but the only happy families are the one I don't know. Well, right. Right. <laughs> I think it ultimately will help. I think that we appreciate each other more when we talk about what, what we want to be the meaning of our lives and it helps us explain ourselves to each other at some level. It's hard to know another person. And I think that when you explore why you want to do something or what you want to do, you learn a lot about them. I think I've learned a lot about my mom in the last dozen years of working with her on this. And I'll, I'll learn even more as we move forward. That's great. So maybe I was going to ask you, what tip can you give to folks that are in the same position? We have a lot of members and a lot of funders out there 
that are stepping into the family philanthropy, you know, and they come from a different generation. And, and probably that's the best tip to be open to learn from the other and know the other and, you know, see what they saying. Yeah. I think for us, it's a little bit easier than it is for larger families or more members. You know, I know that if you've got multiple members of the family all trying to make philanthropic decisions together, it gets very complicated. But I think if you start at that place, just like a political argument, if you start trying to understand the person's motivation for what it is they're intending to do or what matters to them, as opposed to the mechanisms that they're using, sometimes you disagree on mechanism much more than you disagree on outcome. And so if you start from a place of trying to understand that person's story and what they hope that story will be by the time you come to the last chapter, I think that if you're trying to understand that, then it's better than criticizing which ways they like to give or where they like to give or what size of gift they like to give to how many places. I think that we're all different that way, but just figure out why they want to give in the first place and then you'll learn something. Talking about differences, you know, family, generational, you've also been in different cities and different places of the country, right? West Coast, East Coast, Mountain. Is there any significant difference in the way people engage in the different places in which you live? My experience has been the further west you go, the harder it is to get people engaged, period. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying that people on the West Coast or in, in Colorado aren't philanthropically minded, but it's a different kind of philanthropy, especially if you're talking about the Jewish world, just the connection to Jewish things is different. Why do you think that is? I think because we're not from, I mean, I am from Denver and I'm living in Denver again, but we're often not from the communities where we live. And so you don't give to the synagogue just because it's the synagogue where you were bar or bat mitzvah or you know, you don't have those kinds of ties where you give out of a certain kind of um, historical obligation. Everything is new. And I think that that changes your ties to a place. I didn't give that much to Boston Jewish life, but I wasn't really connected to the Boston Jewish community. I'm not tied to it, but I think that people from Boston are more invested in that than people from Seattle are invested in Seattle Jewish life. And and the ethos of the West seems to be an ethos of people leaving something, right? Like you go to Seattle because somebody told me once I could to Seattle because it was the farthest I could go in the continental US from, you know, New York and the East Coast. So, you know, there is something like that of not, you know, escaping that world and not trying to replicate it, right? And having your own identity. Right. The, the pioneer mentality. And this is actually interesting because you're, as we speak, we're planning the Jeff and West convening, you're yes. in the committee there. And um, what are you seeing there about the common threads that people bring in when they talk about Jewish philanthropy in the West Coast and West Coast understanding anything from where you live westwards? I don't know because I haven't been to the conference yet. I need to meet all <laughs> of the people at the conference. I will say that I think that there's more appetite for some of the things we've been talking about venture philanthropy, social enterprises, impact investment, new ways of doing things, efficiencies, technology being integrated into things. And I'm not saying that that's not important in the East Coast, but I do think that that is something that the West thirsts for, or a way of somehow making holistic Jewish identity with environment or other things that we're doing and and making everything that we do somehow more complete <laughs> and not right. siloed. I think it's, that's a sort of a Western way of looking at your life. 
it's sort of a positive twist on intersectionality, right? It's generally used against us. But here we're basically saying you can actually have a Jewish outlet for the environment, racial justice, whatever. You can do that as a Jew, I think, probably easier or, or more organically in the West than in the East, right? And you, and you can find your Jewish core, whatever you want that to be, in different ways. And it might not be in something specifically Jewish, but just based on Jewish values. I think about people in California and amazing farms and things that they build out there. I mean, we've got some in Colorado too, but that that's how they connect with Judaism. And the wisdom there is to embrace that, to give them more Jewish content though, because their value is precisely that they mix the Jewish with the secular. If you make it only secular, so what's our added value? Like there has to be the dialogue between the Jewish and the universal that plays out there, right? I'm thinking about the other thing that's also important in the West, that, that might be important in the East, but this sort of inclusiveness. And mm-hmm. I think that's because so many members of our community that are in our Jewish community aren't necessarily Jewish in the West. Right. We've got so much intermarriage and so many different influences. And I, I think that we have Jews that look like all the different people of the world because they are all the different people of the world in a way right. that you don't see in all communities on the East, although you certainly see in places like Boston or New York. Um, but this inclusivity and this in this sort of flexibility about what counts as doing Jewish, I think that it, there's a much more expansive view of that in the West to sort of bring a lot of things into the fold. Uh, that's interesting because I think that it pre-announces something that is going to happen everywhere. And the inclusiveness, actually, we always think of inclusiveness in terms of things like Jews of color and, and intermarriage and, and stuff like that, which is very important to be uh, inclusive towards those populations. But we're also missing another part of the story, which is Jews that are from the Middle East, that are not necessarily part of the quote-unquote, mainstream Jewish conversation, Haredim, etc. I think we're going to a Jewish community that instead of having a 90% mainstream and 10% outliers, we're actually becoming a mosaic of different minorities. So that's even a reason why Jews of the West may be a little bit different in how they think about their communities. The, the Jewish roots of the West are a lot of it's Sephardic. Right. I mean, even if they didn't know, you've got the, the crypto Jews in New Mexico and places that are Jews that came, I guess, Ashkenazi Jews. Yeah. My family came through Galveston, but it's, um, yeah, I think that just- per- start, Persian Jews in LA. Right. You start from a broader scope of Jews. Talking about Jewish life and Jewish community, What are the things like as a young Jewish woman that is also a leader in the community and a leader in philanthropy, what are are the things that worry you the most and what are the things that give you most hope? Well, first of all, thank you for calling me young. I hope I can hold on to that for a long time. Yes, at least Um, for 20 more years. (laughs) Just don't call me young lady. What gives me hope? I mean, I worry all the time. I'm, I'm Jewish, so I worry about everything. Well, I definitely worry about the division that's happening to American Jewry. Well, not just American jewelry, but American jewelry from American Jews from American Jews from different sides of the political spectrum. And I also do worry that American jewelry and Israeli jewelry or global jewelry are very different and they're, they're becoming wider apart in certain ways. But I, I worry about that because it, it matters because we're not a very big group of people, but it also matters because it, it makes it harder to find meaning in being Jewish how does that make sense? It doesn't make sense, except that there's so much else available yeah. to us. Right. You don't want to be part of a small, quarrelsome group, right? Like exactly when you have so much choice, if what young people see in the Jewish communities 
infighting and division and internecine hatred, like why you need that? You know, it's not that you're condemned to it. You can choose something else. There is lots of other stuff to choose. And I guess that what I hope and what I'm hopeful for when I see different kinds of programs or philanthropic opportunities or volunteer opportunities, I'm hoping that more people who are young Jews find the thing about Judaism that is really meaningful and valuable and something that's beyond tikkun olam. I think that we've used tikkun olam as sort of this crutch, as this way that we think that young people are going to get involved because they want to do something good in the world. And that's true and that's good and that's valuable. But there is so much more to Jewish communal life and to Judaism that is meaningful and that adds color to our lives and that adds cohesiveness to our lives. And I think that there are new ways to connect to it. And I hope that people find those ways. It might come to them later in life. It might not have come from going to Jewish camp or it might have, but we need different avenues in because we all come from such different places. We can't assume that Jews come from one place. So we need a very porous tent so people can come in and exit from lots of different areas. Yeah, and also understand that because, as you said before, because there is a lot of options out there, people are going to go in and out. People are going to leave the community for a while and they're going to come back, hopefully. And that's okay. I mean, I think that our role as leaders is to create that porousness that you were talking about, this notion of re-entry points, because people are not going to stay in the same place forever. They're going to come and go and if we give them re-entry points, it's going to be easy for them to reconnect at different moments in life. And they're coming and going, but I think that there's there's got to be some understanding that contemporary life is about a lot of different things. And so we have to make space to have vibrant Jewish life and community that allows people to be other things at the same time and doesn't assume that Judaism is the only thing. It's just a very important thing. And to create those bridges between your Jewishness and your non-Jewishness. And I think that... What you said about Tikkun Olam is so important because when you understand that properly, it's not really to do general social action, but it's to do social action differently because you're Jewish and to enrich both sides, right? To enrich your Jewishness and to enrich the world. And generally, as you say, it's used as an easy way in as clutches and sort of putting a name to something that has no real content. But there is the possibility of giving it a lot of exciting content. Well, sure, there there, there are layers to make doing good more Jewish, you know, I mean, just the, the idea of, you know, the dignity of the recipient as well as the donor and anonymity between them. That's something that might not be only in Judaism, but is certainly a part of Jewish giving and maybe it makes it better. Where would you want to see the philanthropic community going towards in the future? First, (laughs) I would like for people to understand that they can be more philanthropic. So I'd like it to be a bigger part of people's spend in general. But I think... I mean, you're, um, not, you're not wrong. You know that in the United States, we only give 2.1% of the GDP, which is really low. I mean, it's bigger than other countries, but giving the very generous tax system that we have is low. I think that I would like for more people to be philanthropic reflexively as sort of who they are and what they do. And every year when they're thinking about their budgets, they think about their philanthropic budget. I realize that's an incredibly privileged way of looking at it at some level, but I, I also think it's not because there's always something you can give, even if it's not a monetary thing. Most people have something to give and that it makes your life better when you do give it than if you think in a world of scarcity. I think that the world is so much bigger and there's so much more that we 
get out of life when we think about it being a place of possibility and abundance. So I'd like to see more people look at the world with that mindset. Although I think that I got to it because I've lived a very, very privileged and advantaged life from the start in many ways. Not perfect, but I started with a lot in in a lot of ways. But philanthropically, I, I like for more people to work together. I really do think that this idea of pet projects, I don't think that giving in the way of old federations where you give it this sort of this sort of Jewish tax and you don't know where your money goes and you have no agency in it. I don't think that that's the future. I think the future is something that kind of combines where we came from communally as well as how we evolved personally. I think that there's a way to integrate those two where you're doing things that are personally meaningful and you're offering your knowledge and your contribution of more than just your money, but we're doing it together. And I think that that's where the power is going to really come from when we are integrating our our money and our ability and our point of view, and we're working with other people to come to some sort of consensus as to what a good direction is. Even if we have to change the direction, things will change. Philanthropy changes. I think that that's where I'd like to see philanthropy going, especially in the Jewish world. We have a lot of capabilities and power. We can just harness it together. It would be all the more amazing. Amen to that. Thank you very much. This seems really inspiring. I know you for a couple of years now, but this is I learn new things every time I talk to you again. Well, we'll just continue to learn more and more. We need to. Um, we need to. That was great. Thanks so much to Sintra Polak. And thank you for tuning in. We want to hear your feedback about this podcast, but also guest ideas, breaking philanthropic news, whatever you want to send us. Please write to us at communications at jfunders.org. You can keep up with the Jewish Funders Network at jfunders.org and find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter at jfunders. You can also follow me on Twitter at your own risk, at Spokoini. And I leave you with a quote from the Rabbi Mendel de Kotz, who said, a person must renew himself and his world with him each and every day. So keep renewing yourself, keep renewing the world, keep giving and join us next time on What Gives.